Well, we'll keep trucking in Galatians. Uh, our idea of trucking may be a little slower than others, but we're going to keep going. <laughs> uh, Galatians 4, 12 through 20 today. Galatians 4, 12 through 20. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, please prepare our hearts to receive your word and remind us that we are not here to be entertained but to hear the words of our King Jesus. Remind us that your word is not to be heard only, but also to be done. We ask that your spirit would work in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. As we hear this morning about the anguish of the love that it takes to fulfill the task that you've given us to make disciples, uh, we ask that you would remind us also that you are our greatest good, both both for us and for our neighbors. So do these things in us by the power of the life that lives within us for his glory and for the joy and the fellowship of the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Before we read the text, I just want to uh, kind of comment on, on the purpose and context of this section. It's a little... I have all of chapter 4 on a piece of paper on my desk with lots of lines and circles. And this chunk is just kind of bare and a question mark by it because it's a little bit strange. Because he's talking in covenantal arguments and then he goes into this sort of emotional appeal. um, And it's a bit of a pause. Um, Aristotle, from what I understand, coined the terms... Logos, pathos, and ethos when we were talking about appeals. And Paul, of course, was classically trained. He was aware of those. I doubt he was consciously thinking of them as he wrote Galatians. But Logos is a, a logical appeal. Uh, ethos is, is an ethical appeal. And those are contained in Galatians, but there's also a more emotional or personal appeal, and that is pathos. So a lot of commentators call this Paul, Paul's pathetic appeal not and it's not pathetic in the words that we we typically sense of but they're referring to that pathos that that uh, emotional personal appeal so that it, paul kind of pauses here to do that and <clears throat> so um as we get into this i want to actually i should have told michael this to include it in the bulletin but i want to back up to verse 8 and read from verse 8 through to the end of verse 20 this morning so if you would stand and read we'll read uh god's word i'll read aloud if you would join me in reading silently formerly when you did not know god You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. 
And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. As I prayed about in the prayer, we are commissioned with the task of making disciples. Here in this text, Paul seems to to relate this idea of making disciples with the anguish of childbirth. It's painful. Sometimes I think we wrongly take the promises that are promises that are that salvation and sanctification are works of God, and we thereby conclude that it will be easy as a result. And that's not true. It is difficult work to make disciples. It is painful. We have to understand that everything is under God's providence, but it's we also work within that providence. Um, God does everything. He accomplishes what He wills, but we make a mistake if we forget that He uses secondary means. He does things immediately, not immediately, most of the time. And most often the way He works is through people, through us. So it is our task to fulfill the Great Commission, and we do so not on our own strength, but by faith and in His strength. Paul says in verse 13, You know it was because of a bodily ailment. So just real quick, but the ailment, what it was, is we, we have no idea. There's a lot of conjecture. The truth is that Paul had no shortage of bodily ailments. Plenty of bodily ailments if you've been stoned to death, <laughs> beat with rods. I mean, Paul... And he mentions the eye later and it's possible, you know... That affected his eyesight. But really, we don't know what the bodily ailment was. But he says that in the providence of God, the gospel of the Galatians. He wouldn't have been there to, for some reason, pause and We see this, this idea, God's providence working and taking the opportunity while he's there, enduring a bodily ailment, to preach the gospel to them. 
Now, as I said, making disciples is difficult work. There's a great deal of, of opposition, uh, not least of which is ourselves. I'm the greatest hurdle to my own disciple-making ability. But there are others that we see in life and in Scripture, human uh, attacks, spiritual attacks, uh, personal attacks, political attacks and hurdles. There are the obstacles of everyday life. Also, it's difficult because of the patience and the labor involved. It's interesting when you, when you read Jesus or even some of the other apostles, apostles uh, what's one of the most common metaphors for work in the kingdom of God? Agriculture. A- agriculture is a patience game and a labor game. Also, uh, one of my kind of the th- things that sticks out to me from my seminary experience is my first meeting with, with Andrew Zeller, the president, and I was trying to decide whether or not to go. And I, I talked to him about how I like to work with my hands and wood. And he kind of made an analogy about people, that people need a lot of carving and whittling. And I think of the human heart as being obsidian. It's a lot harder to work with heart than it is wood. It's difficult to make disciples. It is painful. And one of the things that we read in Paul's letter is that So we see Paul's example of how he worked to make disciples. Uh, you think about the challenges he overcome. He, he, I looked at this morning, and I don't know how precise this is, but he traveled over 10,000 bodily The prophet that spoke to Paul, Ananias. Anyway, he spoke to Paul, and he said, you're going to tell Paul how I personally rocks or stone to shipwreck or estranged from my community. But Paul does all this because he longs in his heart, he loves people and he longs to bring spiritual babes to spiritual maturity. That's the goal of his and tending to little things. I think to Perhaps the greatest challenge, even you hear it several times in his letters, how anxious he is over these different church plants. I think that may be the greatest challenge, is that there are these spiritual and doctrinal attacks on on fledgling churches. Making disciples is hard work, it's painful work, but it's a labor of love. Um, That that imagery he uses of, of, of... Childbirth is so striking. I think of Kelly. You know, it's a challenge to bring a, a child into the world, and it hurts, but it, it's worth it. It's a labor of love. That's what we see: is that after pain, there there is joy, uh, the joy of watching a child grow. I think one of the best things about being a parent is seeing. Your children grow. They they change so much over the course of a week. They gain skills. It's it's amazing, and that's what Paul saw and overcame many trials and, and difficulties because these people were growing in, in 
from the gospel. In verse 14, he says, And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Uh, I think bodily ailments don't exactly announce divine favor. I mean, even in our own culture, that's not normal to see somebody with a bodily ailment and you think, oh, he's, he's a prophet of God. He's blessed of God. Literally, he says here that you did not spit on me. And there was a practice in the culture of kind of spitting to, from what I understand, ward off the demons or whatever it was. They accepted him. They received Paul and they received his message as if he were an angel or Jesus Christ himself. They received his message as though he were the king was in their presence. The gospel to them was the thing that got them over the hurdle of Paul's trials or his, his ailments. And it also bore fruit in their lives in the latter half of verse 15. If possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. See them loving Paul, caring for Paul in such a way that this is probably not literal, but an analogy. Like, you would give me your sight is the most important thing. And not only that, but this is a gruesome analogy. You'd be willing to go through the pain of gouging out your own eyes for me. That's how much you love me. That's how much you accepted that I brought to you before. So I'm sure it must have been a great joy to watch the gospel take root in the Galatian churches. To see seedling disciples start to, to come up and to grow and again, like, like labor, like raising children, it's, it's all worth the difficulty. My kids are young, so I haven't had to go through this, but I can imagine the pain in your when you start to see that child start to walk away. And that's what hap- is happening to Paul. You know, the best raised child can fall in with the wrong crowd and even a well-raised child still is immature he has a lot to overcome that immaturity pride and inexperience impressionableness abiding sin and a a lot to mortify yet even if they are a a well-raised child and so you can imagine like a mother with a pit in her stomach that who, who bore that child who raised that child and it's like they're wandering no don't go away don't leave and how could you knowing what you know and what I taught you immature disciples are are a bit like teens they're more easily allured by the wrong crowd you know a a Bill Johnson or a Joel Osteen he seem like nice guys or maybe nicer guys than Sinclair Ferguson or or R.C. Sproul what's the difference they don't understand yet. And that's what we see here in verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. These types of groups always play on the pride and insecurity and desire for acceptance in, in mature people. You think of like a, a gang there's this brotherhood, this family that if you come and be a part of us, we'll take care of you. And it's playing on their insecurity and desire to be a part of something. 
And false teachers employ that same tactic. You, you know, Scientology, Jehovah's Witnesses, as Michael was talking about this morning, come be a part of our family. And they do. They have a strong community. But really, you're never quite good enough. You never quite measure up. You're always on the outside looking in. He says, they, they shut you out so that you'll make much of them. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses, oh, look at the elders. They're the real, you know. I was talking to a friend whose whose wife had been unfaithful to him. Um, and he said kind of the first thing he noticed was she was distant and she stopped sitting close to him on the couch while they watched movies. I think it's the same is true when a child begins to drift away into dangerous territories. The first sign you see is a distance, a, a friction, and they change. Paul, Paul's saying, before, when I was here, you did me no wrong. You, you didn't despise my ailment. You, you would have gouged out your own eyes. You accept, accepted me as Christ himself. But now, look how you've changed. What has become of your blessedness, he says in verse 15. And he wonders, have I become your enemy, in verse 16, by telling you the truth? For the wandering child, those very truths the child was reared on become what he hates. The gospel to him is rigid dogma. Character becomes pompous self-righteousness. Integrity becomes legalism. And so here you can hear the heartache in Paul's tone, he's, he's like a mother watching on in the foolishness of her child. Uh, this isn't the only place Paul compares himself to a mother in, in Thessalonians. He says that he was, they were tender with them as like a nursing mother. And that's not to say that Paul's promoting a sort of feminine disposition in the church which is actually something I think we see a lot, but he's invested in these people like a mother is invested in her child. After all we've been through, after all I've taught you, what's happened to you? Have I become your enemy? He's pleading with them, really, please come back. And he's trying to warn them, these people you think are great do not have your best interests in mind. So there is a heartache uh, in discipling, and, and especially the, the straying disciple. But I want us to realize that God can use that heartache. To... I think we see here, love is expressed in pleading with them. God is sovereign, but we don't want to say, God is sovereign, so I'll let Him deal with it. Maybe we do sometimes. But many times, He's put us to, to work. We are His means. We rely on the Spirit to work, but immediately, through, through words. It's like we talked about two weeks ago, that great verse in Ephesians, what can He do in us more than we ask? It may be that we can use our words to bring them back by God's grace. Now, that can be very painful and very hard to have the best interest of the straying person in mind um, because oftentimes pain uh, 
results in a bitterness or pride toward the person who's walked away. It's like, how could you do that to me? How could you walk away from me? And when they walk away, we're sad that they've walked away from us. But the true tragedy is that because they've strayed from us and we're with Jesus, they've strayed from Jesus. We are not their chief good, but Jesus is. Paul's love here is strong and he's willing to go through that whole painful process over again to see them return to Jesus. It's a strong contrast against the false teachers because he says they make much of you for their own selfish gain. He says, I make much of you too. Even though I'm far away, I make much of you too. But it's not for my gain, it's for Christ. He says in verse 18, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. Not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And that's an excruciating metaphor, (laughs) anguish of childbirth. But it's fitting after all Paul's done for them and after their rejection. And I kind of want to say to Paul, kick the dust off your feet, Paul. Don't throw your pearls before swine. But he, he sees that the pain is worth it in the end. We know Jesus' comment in John chapter 16, Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has born in, been born into the world. I know you women can attest to that. But here, here's an interesting question. A second time to have the same child? I have little doubt you would. Now, of course, Paul's not here talking about the new birth, that they're going to be... Um, he's saying, I'll have to do it all over again. I'm going to start at the to see that Christ is in you. Perhaps one of the more painful things is when a child is unaware that his pride and his selfishness are causing division and pain. Um, they don't even know that they've strained, strayed. Uh, and any measure to help kind of course correct is treated with contempt. Why, why are you being so... I, I really don't think the Galatians knew the trouble that they were in. And so here in this passage, I think Paul is using a bit of irony and a bit of hyperbole even to, to throw some cold water on them and say, look how far you have gone. You do need Christ form. Just be cool, Paul. Lighten up. But the plea of this passage clarifies that the source of Paul's heartache is that they really have walked away from Jesus, away from the gospel. They've left Paul for other teachers, but in leaving Paul, they've left Paul's gospel. In leaving Paul's gospel, they've left Christ's gospel. And in leaving Christ's gospel, they've left Christ. So we see in this passage a selfless love of Paul, seeking their benefit in Christ, and it's contrasted against the selfishness of the false teachers 
who are seeking their own vain glory. And that's that's a a have to to the short sighted plans of children who have fun in mind because they don't have the foresight to see the bigger picture. And we have to lay aside our own pride and bitterness in order to point them to Christ. We don't want to have to be the ones to tell our friends and family, you've drifted from Christ. You've drifted away from the gospel. For fear of making it worse. It's like like a teen who already thinks you're pompous and self-righteous. Is it really going to make it better if we call them to account? But that's, that's love, setting aside our own pride to tell them what they need to hear. I think that the Galatians' first love had grown cold. Uh, it was originally the gospel that compelled them to accept Paul even in spite of his ailment, they accepted him as Christ himself, just like the Thessalonians did. And when Paul tells them, he says, I th- we, and we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, you believers. That, that's how they accepted Paul's gospel. And now, he says, what, what's become of your blessedness? Where's the love that you had at first? Now they've shifted to loving Christ's law more than Christ himself. They've abandoned the work of Jesus for their own work and accomplishments. And like children who who walk off with unwise counselors, they think it's freedom and it's actually bondage. So he's like a mother calling her children back. Though that those children can't quite see them back to true freedom and not to bondage. In verse 12, he was in bondage. He was in bondage to the Lord. Become as they are. He's willing. He, he says, when I visited you and you had me over for dinner, I, I ate the pork tenderloin. Freedom, I became like you are. Now you become like me. Law, man. Man. You're abandoning grace for law. I, I wrung my knuckles before trying to please God, and now I have peace in Christ. Please don't walk away, but become as I am. It's a painful thing. What Paul's doing here, I think, you know, the the 1976 rock song is true. Love hurts. If only if I could learn to love with the love of Christ, to love because He first loved us. Paul's longing at the end of this passage is a beautiful expression of his love in verse 20. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. I think I, 
I give up easily on people uh, because they give up on me. For me, I'd rather not be around them at all anymore. And once they've, they've hurt me, walked away, I'd rather just put them off to the side. I'd rather treat them with cold and harsh tones, not change my tone. And instead of being perplexed and confused about what happened, I know what's wrong with about it. I think when it's not about me and it's about Jesus, I can change my tone. I, I can be in it for the long haul. I can lay aside bitterness and pride and make much of those who hurt me in order that Christ may be formed in them. It's a bit of an aside I want to point out. There are times, and it's clear in Scripture, there are times, you know, especially in cases of apostasy, like in 1 John 5, where people have walked away and it's clear and it's time to be done. There are times like that. And, but I think also we want to be patient to take that, that step to say, I, I'm done with this. And to have a long-haul mentality with people, especially people who claim Christ, who are brothers and sisters. Now this group, um, in my reckoning, is a more mature group. In other words, I've applied this passage to you more as disciplers rather than disciples, but no matter where we are in the Christian life, we're always disciples. So we too will always be tempted to leave our first love. And the, the roots of the gospel really always run more shallow than we would like. Christ can always be formed in our hearts in a greater way, and we conform to Him. So I suppose the, the final conclusion that I draw from this passage is that to have Christ formed in our hearts and the hearts of others is worth the pain. As my dad likes to say, pain with a purpose. Right? Christ really is worth the anguish of love. Amen.